Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Verse 5, he says, One Lord. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4-6 through 6 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Right? It's lo- that's just straight logic. And that there is no God but one, obviously. For although... There may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote-unquote, gods or many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all think men. And if you want a verse to just sit on and marinate on this week. Yeah, I use the word marinate. Sit on and marinate, meditate on. This week, this is a verse for you. Because it says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all th- are all things, and through whom we exist. Man, what a complex, beautiful verse that just makes you sit there and be like, wow, I need to like sit in that. But what this is telling us, and what this is showing us, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is our one Lord. And I think that this is a good time for us to clarify that following Jesus, right, the Jesus of the Bible, not the, not the Jesus that, that you think in your head or the Jesus that you want to believe in, but the Jesus of the Bible, that belief is an exclusive ideology or worldview. It is exclusive, which, which is why many times you probably hear people refer to Christians as like bigots or intolerant. And for those of you that don't know what a bigot is, I'm going to admit, when I hear bigot, I just was like, that's not a good thing. That's all I know. So I'm going to read you the definition, because maybe you're just like me, and you were too scared to be like, I don't know what a bigot is. But thank God for the dictionary, right? So bigot is a person who is obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudice prejudices, especially one who regards or treats the members of a group, such as a racial or ethnic group, with hatred and intolerance. And it's just so interesting, because as soon as I read that definition, the first thing I just thought about is uh, conservatives and liberals. This is, like, that is exactly how I would define political parties nowadays in the United States. But that's a whole other rabbit trail that we're not going to get into. But it's easy for me. So the reason why it's easy for me to say that Christianity is an exclusive ideology or is an exclusive um, belief system is because truth itself is exclusive. Truth itself is exclusive. And there's currently this ideology or, um, or worldview or religion out there that says that all religions lead to the same God and that all religions may have some truth to them, but there's no religion that, that offers the totality of truth. And the interesting thing, we're going to get a little like philosophical here. The interesting thing about these beliefs is because these beliefs are exclusive in themselves. It's a, it's a, and it's, it's, that belief is an exclusive belief system or, or religion within itself. In the, in the attempt to be inclusive in saying that all religions are right, they are claiming, they are making the truth claim that belief systems that teach and believe 
either opposing uh, characteristics of God or even the existence of God are wrong. That's what they're saying. And even though it may seem, at face value, that may seem like a really um, like nice and, and inclusive belief system, if you start to dissect that logically, it holds no water. Has anyone here, I've, and I've shared it in this group before, has anyone heard of the six blind men and the elephant story? Who has not heard that story? Nice. There's like 50% of you didn't even raise your hand. That's tight, guys. Um, great participation. But, so the six blind men, I'm just going to do a brief overview, overview, and it's partly because I don't remember what all the six blind men say, but you'll get the gist of it. So essentially, there's these six blind men, and they have no idea what an elephant looks like, and they're all arguing about what an elephant is, and then they all have the opportunity to go and feel an elephant because they're blind. They can't see it. So they go up, and one guy starts touching the trunk, and one guy's, like, over by the ear, one guy's, like, touching the leg, one guy's, like, over by the belly, and one guy's, like, playing with the tail. And, and one of the blind men is like, oh, I get it. Uh, an elephant is like a rope because he's, he's playing with the tail. He's like, oh, it's like a rope. And then the guy in the front, he's like, no, it's not. It's like a snake, the guy that's like hanging on the trunk. And then he's like, dude, you guys are so wrong. It's like a fan because he's over by the ear and the ear's moving. And, and then one guy's like hugging the leg and he's like, no, you guys are crazy. It's like a tree. And then another dude is like pressed up against the side. And he's like, dude, you guys are so dumb. An elephant's like a wall. You guys are ridiculous. And so what this is, what this is trying to, to like say is like, oh man, all these religions have some truth because an elephant may be like all these things. But, but the problem with that, that whole thing is, is that an elephant isn't a rope. It's not a snake. It's not a tree or a wall or a fan. An elephant is an elephant, right? So the truth is that an elephant is an elephant. So using the law of non-contradiction, right, going back to and using these, these, these belief, this belief system that all religions lead to God or all roads lead to God, using the law of non-contradiction, both Christianity and Buddhism cannot both be right because God cannot exist and not exist. Islam and Christianity can't both be right because God cannot be both personal and impersonal. Christianity and Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness cannot be right because Jesus cannot both be God and not be God. So this, this belief system is... Belief, well, this, this whole idea of just belief systems in themselves, religions in themselves are exclusive in nature, again, because truth is exclusive in nature. And... Just to, just to end it with this, this whole idea, not all truth is relative. And we, we, ha- we did a, a whole teaching on truth, and it gets really complex. But this, this whole idea, there's another, it's, what is it called? I think it's called relativism. Is that right, Jesse? Okay, so there's this idea out there called relativism, that all truth is relative, which means I have my truth and you have your truth. But that, again doesn't make any sense at all because that statement that all truth is relative is an absolute truth claim. It's an objective truth claim. So that, that statement in itself is illogical because it goes against exactly what... See, that's when it gets confusing. But anyways, just know that that statement doesn't make any sense because it's an absolute truth claim. So all truth cannot be relative. But anyways, 1 Peter 3, 15-15 says, But in your hearts... 
honor Christ the Lord, again, Christ is the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So I think that it's very important for us, it, for, for us to be able to know why we believe what we believe. And, I, and that's important for so many, different reasons, uh, so many different reasons, because if you just go your whole life being told what to believe and just believing everything that you're told. Let's say you grew up in a Christian home and you were just told what to believe your entire life and you believe what you believe because that's what your parents believe. That's what your parents told you believe. As soon as you go to college or as soon as you leave that, that safe space in your parents' home, guess what? Not everyone believes that. And there's people that, that will poke holes and try to convince you, right, logically, that your belief system doesn't make any sense and because you've gone your whole life just accepting everything, just believing everything you've been told, you're going to be like, wait a second. That makes sense too. Because you've built your entire faith, you've built your entire, um, you've, you've built your entire relationship with Jesus on sand. And so as soon as someone comes, as soon as the wind comes, or someone comes and pokes a hole in, in your faith, it explodes. And you, don't know what, and you don't know what to believe anymore. I think it's so important. This is the reason why I think that doubt is a good thing. And why, and I can say, so I just have two, two caveats to that. I think doubt is a good thing when you are pursuing the truth. If you doubt, but you have a heart that you really want to know the truth, and you pursue the truth, guess what? You will find the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he tends to meet us when we search for him. He says that constantly. Man, Search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. But if you doubt, this is when doubt becomes a bad thing. When you doubt and you're just, and you're just content with, with doubting, you don't really care to find out the answer, that is when doubt is detrimental to your life. When you're just content with doubting. So if you are in a state right now or you are in a season of doubt, my encouragement to you is that is okay. I have, been many, I have been in many seasons like that myself. And it is the reason why I'm standing before you today and teaching you this book. Because of the doubt that I went through. Because I did seek the truth. I did look for answers. And guess what? Jesus met me. And he solidified my faith. And so I just encourage you guys to, to do that. And so you have a defense. But don't, don't consume your entire life with having a defense and just go up and trying to argue with people and prove to them how, how they're stupid for not believing the things that you believe. That's not the point, because what does Peter go on to say? He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What he's saying is that when, some, when you have a conversation with someone, you should be able to explain why you believe what you believe. But when you do it, you do it with gentleness. Again, you do it with meekness. Not to, not to put someone down or, or take someone out for, for their beliefs. You do it with gentleness. You do it with meekness. You do it with love and respect. And what he's saying is, man, when you, when you live that life, because I, I myself have been in positions, and I've told you about that, in the Marine Corps when I was sharing with different Marines and he wouldn't even let me say what I believe because he would just tell me how stupid I am. Be like, dude, you're an idiot for believing that, X, Y, Z. But what, what Peter goes on to say is when your lifestyle 
is, is in accordance with your beliefs, when you live in such a way, when you continue to love them and you continue to, to respect them through that, man, people are, are so much more open to hearing what you have to say when they know that you genuinely care about them, when you're not just there to, to win their intellect and then move on. When you genuinely care about someone, people recognize that. And they are so much more open to hear what you have to say when you have lived it first. So, uh, moving on to one faith. Man, I need to go faster. One faith. So, what is this exclusive ideology that we put our faith in? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This scripture is so significant for multiple reasons. This is a creed. Right? That, that was taught and spoken. Historians uh, believe, right? His, historian scholars believe that this creed was taught and spoken somewhere within 30 and 35 AD. So within two years, right? Two years or less after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, this creed was being taught that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and then appeared more, to more than 500 brothers at one time. And this, man, this is, this is, is crazy, because after Jesus resurrected, guess what? Christianity exploded, which is so interesting, because if the body of Jesus was still there, and we have biblical and non-biblical uh, historical texts that talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, but, but if Jesus were to have died, right? And nobody, nobody argues the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And some people have this theory out there that he was half dead, but doesn't make any sense because how could a half dead person who was sitting in a tomb, one, he was stabbed in the side and water and blood came out. Romans were, were professionals at killing people. Um, and so they say that Jesus was half dead and then he somehow like came out of the tomb, cleaned himself up, moved the rock, beat up a couple of Roman soldiers and then head on his way and then acted like he was resurrected. Yeah, dude, that's logical. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. Um, the Roman guard, the Roman, oh, man, I don't have a lot of time, but I really want to get into this. Um, but anyways, we'll do that later. But um, if Jesus were dead, then people could have just gone and looked at the dead body of Jesus and been like, well, he didn't raise from the dead because there's his body. And then there was this, this uh, theory running around that the, the apostles, right, they somehow knocked out all the Roman guards and they stole the body of Jesus. And then they started teaching that Jesus was resurrected, so much so that they were put in prison for it and then they were killed for it. And that, again, doesn't make any, any sense at all. Like if I, if I were to go out and, and lie to you about someone being raised from the dead and then you're like, okay, I'm going to kill you now, I'd be like, just kidding. I was lying. Here's his body. Please don't kill me. So it's just, it blows, it blows my mind that Jesus showed himself to the 12 people and over 500 people, and all of these people were firsthand witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and Christianity exploded. And again, we can get um, really into this, but we, I just need to, I need us to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus is the single most significant event in history. The resurrection of Jesus forces you to make a decision on Jesus. Is Jesus the Son of God or is he not? 
Because if you look at history and, and you look at, at what scholars have to say about it, Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. And if he is the son, and God, son of God, then you have to consider all of the things that he said and all of the things that he did and you have to make a decision. So we Christians, believers in Jesus, we do have a reasonable faith. It is our faith in Christ that sets us free and all we need to do is accept the free gift of grace to receive salvation. And that is what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is all about. You were dead in your sin, but God stepped in, who's rich in mercy because he loves you and died for you, so that all you have to do is, is have faith in him. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And I can get so much more into why this is the only logical um, religion that makes sense or belief system that makes sense, but I don't have time to do that. So moving on, one baptism. Colossians 2, 11 through 15 says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Man, what an incredible picture. And what baptism is, it is an outward expression. It is a physical act that we do that shows, that represents what has happened in your heart. You have given your life to Christ in your heart. You are made right with God in that decision. But we are called to baptism for, for multiple reasons. One, so that your brothers and sisters can celebrate that decision with you. Man, so, so there, there is a celebration and like welcoming into, into the family of God, but it's also to, to have your brothers, to, to have people to hold you accountable to that. So that when you start walking in your own way and you start doing things that aren't in accordance with, with the kind of love life that we are called to live, your brothers and sisters can be there to be like, whoa, dude, hey man, this is, this, like, I love you and, and I care for you and this is why I'm telling you this. Right? And this is, we just need to be careful again when we come to correcting people and making sure that it's not something that we are doing in a prideful way. Just like we're, I'm, I'm much better than you and I know what scripture says more than you do, so this is what you're supposed to do. Our heart, again, it's not what you do, but it's why you do it. Your heart should be because you care so much and love your brother or sister so much that you don't want them to have to walk through the consequences of the decisions that they're making. And that is why God calls sin, sin, because he, he calls you not to live in sin or do sin because he doesn't want you to have to suffer the consequences of sin. It's not because he's a God that doesn't want you to have fun. Now, to end it, it says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Man, what an incredible, and I'm just so excited to end it in this way, especially since we get to go before our God and worship one more time. Our God, Yahweh, as he makes himself known, in scripture is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Psalm 19, one through four says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech 
nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their cove goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, uh, to the end of the world. Creation itself screams out the beauty and the glory of God. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made through him. Creation itself, man, screams of the incredible power and divine nature of our God. And so when you consider things, when you look at the world and you consider and getting, getting deeper into it, like the, the fine-tuning of the cosmos, man, like the tilts of the earth, the distance of the earth from the, uh, from, of the earth from the sun, the speed at which the earth spins. Man, for you science nerds out there, like chemistry people, the, the electromagnetic force so that atoms can, can become molecules, like all of this stuff, the complexity of a single living cell, Man, the language of DNA, man, if DNA were to be unwound in a single cell, if it were to be unwound, it would stretch six feet. And you have around 37, so somewhere between 30 and 40 trillion cells in your body. And I can't, I'm not smart enough to do the math on how long that would be, but some of you are in this room probably. Um, but anyways, that's, in, that's insane. And there's only one principle that we can know that can come up with complex, interactive systems, and that is intelligence. Intelligence. You have been designed by intelligence, so you can go from simply looking at a Tucson sunset, or looking at the ocean, or looking at mountains, and you can see and know that there is incredibly complex an artistic creator, and you can go even deeper and, and look at a cell, a single cell, and you can see and know that there is an incredibly intelligent and complex and artistic creator. And that creator, that one God and Father of all, he loves you. That is the, most, that is the greatest theological truth that you can possibly find in the Bible. God, the creator of the world, loves you personally and specifically and individually. That is incredible. He created you on purpose. You may not feel like it. You may not think. You may think, like, why am I on this earth? I, I just want to confirm to you and let you know and remind you that you are created with purpose. You were created on purpose. You were created for a purpose. You were created to live in the love that God has for you. He sent his son to die for your sins so that you can be free. And you don't have to live in shame or be guilty or worry or, or be anxious about earning his favor or earning his love. And he just loves you. You don't have to guess where you stand with our God. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we are just so humbled and in awe of the God that you are. Father, we just ask that, God, we repent of our sin right now. We repent of the things that we have been putting our hope in, that we have been idolizing, that we have been worshiping. God, we, we ask that you would forgive us for living um, just life for ourselves, God. 
that we haven't been putting you in the right place that you are so worthy of and you so deserve. You are creator and we are creation. God, we thank you that, that we can trust you. Lord, you are such a good, loving father and we thank you for that. And so I just pray that during this time of worship that, that we would just be able to lay aside, lay all those burdens that, that, we're, that we're holding, God, all of those sins that we've been struggling with, this, this false facade that we've been living in church and, and around people, Lord, we just lay it at your feet. And we ask that you would just forgive us and that we would just, Lord, just live in, in your love and be in your love in this moment. And so we thank you again for, for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. Pastor JD here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the young adults ministry of Calvary Tucson. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 to 28, we want to invite you to join us in person. We meet every Thursday evening at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. Come join us. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Down away.